Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, it's time once more for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some very cool plant people to figure out why they do what they do and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the sciences. And as always, my dearest friends, I am so happy and thrilled to be with you today. Hey, we've got some important questions to answer today, like uh, can M&Ms help you with your stress? Can your green thumb be selective. How do our brains interact with plants? And uh, so many more things about plants and life and neuroscience. And I am so excited to have today's guest on. My guest, Morgan Johnson, uh, known across the internet as Ask a Neuroscientist. Uh, And I recorded this actually back a couple of months ago, and I'm finally getting this out, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. So Morgan actually got to come into town. She lives in a a different city, but she was coming into town for some different stuff, but I convinced myself because it makes me feel good that she drove all the way here six hours just to see me and to record this podcast with me. But uh, it was I was so excited to get to do this in person because it's hard to do in-person interviews sometimes, and especially when I've got guests from all over the state and all over the country and all over the world. But Morgan and I sat down and talked about her life as a neuroscientist. She is working on her PhD in neuroscience right now, uh, studying things like the effects of different chemicals and drugs on the brain, uh, the ways we handle stress, and sort of the intersections between all those things. So a little bit of a quick content warning for today's episode. We have a, a frank discussion in this about different types of drugs, both the recreational kind and the medicinal kind, and the ways that they affect our brains. We talk about some of the causes of addiction. We talk about some things that may make us slide back into addictive tendencies and things like that. And so uh, it's really a fascinating discussion of how different chemicals and different plants affect our brain chemistry and our bodies and uh, how we find out how some of those things happen. But I know this is a sensitive subject for some people. So uh, just bear that in mind. Listener discretion is advised. As always, this is safe for work. Uh, But in terms of content, you may just want to self-police on this just a little bit. But uh, it's such a fun episode. Morgan is wonderful and brilliant. And I had so much fun actually getting to meet her in person and talk with her. Um, We actually have known each other for a little while just through some of our science communication and and social media stuff. But uh, you are going to love this one. I am glad to be back at this and putting new content out there. So get yourself ready for episode 98 of the Planthropology Podcast with my friend Morgan Johnson, also known as Ask a Neuroscientist. Well, Morgan, I am so excited that you made the long drive up. And I know you, I know you didn't drive here all the way, you know, the six hours <laughs> for this, but I'm pretending like you did. Yeah, take that. Just just assume that I'm, I'm that passionate about this podcast. Yeah, no, it makes me <laughs> it makes me feel good. So like I, I that's what I'm going with. But um, thanks so much for coming in today. Like, I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm excited for our listeners to hear sort of a different take and a different sort of angle into plant science. Um, but to start off with, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about you and and. Uh, what you did growing up and and what got you interested in science and where you are today. 
Yeah. So uh, my name is Morgan Johnston. I am currently a behavioral neuroscientist, meaning that I study um, how our brains generate the behaviors that we do. And um, I guess my my journey to science, um, whenever I was young, I grew up in like a really small, uh, like farming community, small town. And, you know, the uh, those people tend to have certain opinions about hmm. women in science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for a long time, I was told that I couldn't go into science um, or that like I was too smart for my own good. And so um, I had to kind of like push past that and. Eventually, I wound up like going to a school in the city that sort of like more so fostered um, the Mm -hmm. science scientist in me. And actually, my senior year of high school, I ended up doing research at a medical campus um, studying traumatic brain injuries. And then I went to my undergrad at Oklahoma State University. And they're a big land grant university. They have a lot of like horticulture and plants and landscaping stuff there. And um, while I was there, I was engaged in a lot of basic research. And the difference between like basic and like medical research is that basic research sort of focuses more on like how do things function Mm -hmm. in general versus medical research. You're like trying to find a cure for everything. Right. And I think that sort of helped me see like the importance of looking at sort of like the more what someone who studies like uh, bodies would consider like the basics Mm -hmm. of things like how do the nutrients that we eat affect us um, that we just sort of like take for granted how do like how are plants able to interact with us um, when they're not made of the same stuff that humans are made of? <laughs> like they have different cells, they have different things going on. So um, there I was involved in really basic research uh, looking at social interactions. And then I came to Texas to do my graduate research. So right now I'm a third year PhD student at a Texas institution that I won't dox. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But um, now I'm studying how different drugs interact with our brain. Um, one of those drugs is cocaine. I also have sort of a interest in looking at uh, marijuana or cannabis or weed or whatever people want to <laughs> call it. Um, I have colleagues who are interested in like magic mushroom type stuff, uh, LSD, uh, and just looking at like how these different substances are able to make us feel certain ways and uh, have certain experiences that maybe like we're not physically going through psychedelics is like what I'm trying to say right, like a sure, science right. way. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, that's what I look at now. And I also look a lot at stress, um, which mm. stress is something that impacts all of us. Sure. And also something that's really big in like, how, how do we make stress have less effects on people? Interesting. Well, that as, as a PhD student, I feel like that is probably something that's relevant to your life <laughs> is how do you reduce the load of stress on your self just in general. Yeah. I'm very lucky. A lot of our students have to start their talks with like, Oh, why should anyone have to care about this? Why do I care about a certain cell, (laughs) what it's doing? And I get to start all my talks with, we're all stressed. (laughs) Yeah. Instantly relatable, instantly relatable, especially like in any academic setting. (laughs) Like if you go to a conference, like everyone looks tired. Everyone's just stressed out all the time. It's like the three days you get out of the lab or out of whatever. And (laughs) Uh, so we're all stressed. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So you have, uh, and I was kind of, you know, reading through your experience earlier, and you have two bachelor's degrees. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So uh, my first bachelor's degree is in biology, and my second is in physiology. Um, so basically, about halfway through my biology degree, I decided 
uh, this isn't easy enough and I want to take more classes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I took enough to get the second physiology degree. Um, Also because Oklahoma State University doesn't have a neuroscience program. Okay. So, but I think that benefited me in a lot of ways because a lot of people who study purely neuroscience, um, they get sort of what we call tunnel vision. Like Mm -hmm. they're very focused on that. Versus I feel like I'm able to have more like a holistic view of the body and I can bring up like how the heart might be involved in certain stuff and things like that. That's really interesting. And and I mean, for sure, because I think and I like what you were talking about earlier a little bit about, you know, basic versus uh, medical research or applied research. You know, so I'm, I'm very much an applied scientist. My work has always been at sort of macro, macro level, systems level mm-hmm. We, we were kind of talking off mic before we started about how in plant science we do things that like you couldn't get away with in any other biological science. Uh-huh. It's like, I'm going to stick this tree in a bag. <laughs> I am going to not water one of these for three months and let's see what happens. Right. Which I absolutely could not get away with with my animals. No, no, <laughs> and no. I don't want to. I don't want to get away with it. <laughs> there would be some, uh, yeah, some probably unpleasant phone calls to deal with from IUCOC and different yeah. different groups from from that. But uh, you know, so, so a lot of my work has been, you know, if we induce physiological environmental stress on plants, well, my master's work was more physiological, but since then it's more than like, how long does it take this thing to not do the thing it's supposed to be doing? Yeah. When I don't water it or leave it in the sun or whatever. Well, uh, what's, something that's really interesting. Um, I follow this lady on TikTok who studies like stress in corn plants. And it's so funny to me because whenever you guys say stress, you mean I don't water it or like I yeah. leave it out in the sun yeah. for too long. And whenever I say stress, I mean like I put my rats in a little tube and they get stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I saw it, I was like, how do you stress a plant? They don't have the same emotions. Yeah. No, well, no, but it is interesting though. Cause it, you know, and again, I am not, an animal biologist in any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, we see in plants that we induce different stressors from uh, whether it is uh, introducing pests, whether there are um, things being withheld like fertility or water or sunlight or whatever. Um, It is interesting to me as someone who is stressed (laughs) 85% of my life, you know, some of the sort of, coping mechanisms and that is not the right way to to talk about plants but some of the things that that plants physiologically do to cope with that is sort of an interesting parallel in some ways to i think like animal biology like oh we will if we if we exclude sunlight they'll do things like the stems get longer and they'll try to you know get into the sun or if we restrict water sometimes they'll shed the larger leaves because that's where all the water is lost from and things like that so they do have actually very sometimes very quick stress responses it's just not like an emotional response it's just sort of a okay the environment is doing this so i'm going to do this kind of thing Right. And humans and animals have like our, uh, I say like a physical stress response versus like sort of like an emotional or like a neurological stress response. And so like humans, for example, if they go through like a famine and they like aren't able to eat for very long, then um, their cells will start to like retain more uh, nutrients. And so then you actually end up gaining weight from Hmm. not having as much food because your body's trying to like store that. And that can be like generations down the line people struggle with like um being perceived as like overweight by society because their ancestors were starved (laughs) huh that's fascinating i actually i had no idea that's really well it's it's really interesting that that passes down through sort of the 
the genetic line as well. Like it's something right. that affects us at the like DNA level. And that's something that happens like mentally too. Like um, we have seen in like, if you look over the course of years that like mental health is deteriorating, like young people have the worst mental health now than like they have ever ever yeah yeah and um it can actually like compound like if your grandparents had anxiety and then your parents had anxiety and then you have anxiety likely it's getting like degrees worse throughout but what's really neat or not so neat for the people who struggle with this (laughs) but interesting is that it's not always the same so people think of like mental illness as genetic because it can get passed down this way but um say like your grandma had schizophrenia your then mother might not have schizophrenia maybe she has generalized anxiety disorder Hmm. and then maybe you have obsessive compulsive disorder so you all resulted in a mental illness but not necessarily the exact same one wow that's yeah that is really interesting and you know with plants we tend to think of some more you know direct heredity of uh, or uh, inheritance of traits like okay this right. plant had you know if we want to get real simple like this pea plant has white flowers mm-hmm. this one you know if we want to look at just mendelian genetics but at the same time too like we I, we've got a plant in the garden right now that um, we're starting to see some striping on some of the new flowers that are coming out and that is usually induced by environmental stress or uh, a virus you know, that is messing with the transposons in the, in the, the, the genes, but that's something that gets carried forward. Uh, so if you've ever seen like a rose that has marbling in the, in the flower, that's usually virally induced, but then you can carry it on down through the genetic line. That's really interesting. Cause I know I have a friend who like collects a lot of plants. I know those are like really highly sought after the one that, that ones that have that mar- marbling. So mm-hmm. Kind of crazy that that comes from stress. Yeah, it's it's a uh, you know some kind of either a pathogen or there's a lot of ways it happens. But yeah, you know, I, and and thinking about it now, we do see inherited traits that that get carried on, even just like well, and when we do drought stress research, which is actually a lot of what we do here, because as you may have noticed, driving in <laughs> it is dry. Yeah, and there's I would endless, call it a drought. <laughs> endless nothing. Um, you know, we have to figure out how do our crop plants, how do our other things uh, survive that? And we can do it through breeding work. But, you know, some of it's just selection pressure, natural selection pressure. Some of it, though, is, you know, we induce changes based on environment. That's just I don't know. I think that I, I sort of the more I learn about biology, one, the more I realize I don't understand about biology because it's so complex. But two, about how we see certain biological things that hold up across even kingdoms, you know, of biology. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Like, um, I was looking up recently because so, um, talking about like, uh, cannabis stuff, you in your body have something called like the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. And for a long time I was like, wow, we really have like a system that's purely dedicated to people who smoke weed. But but actually the way that it came about and like, I think the way that a lot of these similarities between like humans and plants came about is because we evolved together. We sort of just evolved the same traits, like, naturally so in your body you have molecules that resemble like thc or like cbd Mm -hmm. but also like the cannabis plant also just independently developed those same molecules um which was really nifty and so like like same for like these uh coping stress coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. um of like what to do wherever there's a drought humans had to figure that out plants had to figure that out we all have been living on this earth together going through the same stuff 
Yeah. And that's, yeah. That, and that's a fascinating thing. And I think that's maybe something that in general now, not, I'm not saying like by science, but by people just in general, like that's something that's maybe not well understood about evolution, that it's, mm-hmm. it is a response to the things that stress us out, right. As oh, a yeah. species. I get asked all the time. So there's in your skull that supposedly like protects your brains. You have some spiky bits that like if your brain hits those, then you get brain damage. (laughs) Yeah. And people ask me all the time. They're like, well, why would we evolve that? Because that's not helpful. And I just have to like evolution is not working towards like the most helpful thing. It's working towards like what is helpful in this moment, Mm -hmm. not what is going to be helpful for the long term. And so your school evolved to help you get through puberty and that's sort of its main goal. (laughs) And then past that, your body doesn't really care about you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so talking about your current research. Okay. So, um, you know, when, when you're looking at all these different plant compounds, all these different, just, you know, I say plant compounds and you made a good point that, like everything is kind of plants. Like yeah. everything kind of comes from plants. Exactly. Like I was shocked recently. I was telling one of my friends that I was going to be coming on the podcast. And like initially, whenever you asked me if I knew anything about plants, the only plant that I could think of was cannabis. But then um, I was talking to one of my friends about this and they were like, oh, well, you also study cocaine and cocaine comes from a plant. And I was like, oh my God, it does. The like the vast majority of the medicines and the drugs that we have at some point did come from a plant. Like nowadays, I want to say it's like around 70% that did come from a plant originally, but now we make synthetically. Mm-hmm. But if we hadn't have had that plant to begin with, we would never have figured out those drugs. And the vast majority of neuroscience and like the type of research that I do, um, which is called neuropharmacology, which just means we're looking at drugs in the brain, mm-hmm. um, is based on like how are these plants able to affect us uh, like humans see a plant they consume it the plant has an effect right why why would that plant have an effect on us what is it doing and that's how we managed to figure out a lot of the body is just looking at like oh if we change this thing in this case eating a plant mm-hmm. how did what did it do yeah it's really interesting i think i think about that a lot from a so i study food quite a bit so from a food <laughs> standpoint i think about that a lot and that's come up on here before but like so much of what we know just came through observation of like bill ate that plant and now what's going on with bill like oh no bill's dead and then like maybe we don't eat this plant again or you know there were some kind of positive effect from it it's like oh we need to figure out why and you know for a long time i think we just did things because it worked and we just did things and you know over the past I don't know, a few hundred years, we've really started drilling into what does that mean? Like, what does it mean for us? What does it mean as a global ecosystem? Exactly. And like, I don't really want to like discourage anyone's faith in medicine because like modern medicine is the best that it's ever been. Sure. But we still, to some extent do that. Like we see medications that we make for a specific population. Like we still, to this day are like, we see something have an effect and we're like, huh, Maybe I want that effect. Maybe we should use it. And maybe we don't know exactly why. Like um, SSRIs, serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are commonly prescribed for depression. Um, We know that they selectively reduce the amount of serotonin that's uh, sort of like put in the trash bin in your in your head. Hmm. Uh, So you have more serotonin lying around. But we don't know why that helps. Um, huh. we, we don't know why that helps or why it like helps some people and why it doesn't help other people. We just saw that it does help some people. And so we should use it. 
Huh. And that's really interesting too. And I think, and what, what I don't want people to hear, because I know being a scientist, I know what people hear sometimes mm-hmm. is like, well, they're just like trying stuff. And exactly. And the fact is like, well, I mean, kind of, <laughs> kind of, but like, we rigorously test these things, right? Exactly. It's not anymore like the way that we developed the smallpox vaccine yeah. where we were like, let's pull in a child off the street right. and give them a vaccine. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah, we have like the FDA, we have ethics committees, we have like all sorts of stuff that we go through and we're trying things. It's always an educated guess. Right. Like, we're not like, ah, what would happen if we give a depressed person a blueberry? <laughs> we have no evidence to do that study. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Well, and, you know, there's a lot of research coming out sort of on the plant side of um, when we look at psychology and human physiology of how much. Ev- so it's always sounded kind of like intuitive, like go outside, you'll feel better. Yeah. Like I know as a kid, like if I was just like moping around the house, it'd be like, go play outside. Like just go outside, get some sunlight, get some, you know, be around the plants. But there's more research starting to come out of like, what kind of like you made a good point earlier that, you know, we co-evolved with these plants, all these different organisms. And it's, you know, at some point we convince ourselves that we're so other. Yeah. But like we have these evolutionary relationships. And so like we have receptors in our brain that can detect the volatile organic compounds that plants are putting out to like message each other and like bugs and things. And like, it does have physiological effects just like being outside. Yeah. There's like parts of our brain that sense sunlight that like, want to be in the sunlight for a certain period of time. And there's been, I don't even know how many studies on like the benefits of having like a potted plant in the lab, a potted mm-hmm. plant in your office, um, just like be around it. And yeah, not to be like too hippity dippity, but yeah, I definitely <laughs> feel a lot better whenever I go outside and it's upsetting sometimes. Cause your therapist will be like, go spend like 30 minutes outside and you'll feel better. And then you do it and you do feel better. You're like, ah, can't believe that worked. Yeah. I could have been doing this the whole time. No. And like, there's a whole thing on TikTok right now of people like going outside, like I'm going outside to take a stupid walk for my stupid mental yeah. health. And I'm mad cause it works. And I do that all the time. If an experiment's not working properly, I go outside and we have, uh, I've discovered on my campus, like a nice little secluded area. That's just like a bunch of trees that no one goes in for some reason. Huh. And so I'll just like, if I'm really angry at like my boss who I would never be angry at my entire <laughs> life <laughs> or like if my experiments aren't working properly, I'll just like go outside and sit in some trees for a little while and then it, it's better. It's better. <laughs> yeah. It's simple. If nothing else. Right. It's uh-huh. like, I don't know. I, I've, I have always found comfort in just like being alone in nature for, even if it's five or 10 minutes, like, like some days, especially on stressful days, like I'll go grab lunch or I'll take lunch and just go sit at the park. And, yeah. and just like eat lunch outside by myself for 10 minutes. And it kind of resets my brain a little bit and lets me get back into my day. Yeah, I also think there's a part of ourself that's sort of like, you're sort of like tricking your brain into thinking that everything is okay by hmm. going outside. Like in our, in our modern world, like the office is a stressful environment. Our hmm. brains are really good at picking up on cues and the different things that signal danger, especially. And so if like you've been in your office stressed for a whole week, your brain is going to start to associate your office with stress. But if you're like not typically stressed outside, you know that whenever you go take these like 30 minute walks, so you feel better Then whenever you go outside, you're telling your brain, Hey, we're in a safe place. We're in a happy place. We're going to be happy now. And your, your body sort of follows along. Your brain is incredibly good at tricking your, your whole body into thinking either you're okay or you're in danger. And 
we can use that to our advantage. It can also incredibly <laughs> like hurt us a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, so, you know, to the degree you can, uh, I'd like to hear more about your research. Again, like, don't scoop yourself and like, this is everything that I've done and here's all my data. But like, <laughs> like, I'm really curious to hear, like, what what are you looking at with these, these different compounds? Right. So in my lab, we sort of have several different projects that we work on. Um, the big one is looking at like um, exactly what cocaine is doing to the brain is sort of like our, our main thing, because like some people are able to, to take cocaine once or twice and not become addicted to it. Other people are very dependent on it. And so hmm. what is it doing to the brain to create that dependency? And then also um, we're specifically like looking at a different set of neurons than people normally look at, or I should say a different set of brain cells. So in your brain, um, people think that like all brain cells are neurons, Mm -hmm. but actually only about half of them are neurons Mm. and the other half are what are called um, glia. And that's, uh, they used to be thought of as like support system for your brain. And so that's why like no one really thinks about them or talks about them because <laughs> um, they were like, ah, it's just like the structure of your brain. But nowadays um, people are discovering, oh, no, it actually has a purpose. And there's a reason why our brains developed those. Um, and so people are looking more at uh, their role in addiction um, because they haven't been studied much in the past. And then also we're looking at how stress might um, – so, like, people who are in stressful situations are more likely to relapse. And so why? And yeah, uh, yeah. is there something that we can do to help people in that situation? Is there maybe, like, a medication that we could administer to, like, help them not feel – either feel the stress or feel the need to um, relapse if they are stressed? And then uh, separately from that, I also just study generally how stress impacts our behavior. Mm-hmm. So um, a really interesting finding from our lab that's published, so I can okay, say yeah, great. <laughs> um, is that stress can actually enhance learning. So you can actually learn better when you are stressed. And probably that evolved because um, you need to know what the danger is. So, sure. Um, but what's really neat is that it also works for rewards. So, um, you can also learn where the good things are very easily. If you're yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which sounds brilliant. And a lot of professors get really excited when I say that because they're <laughs> like, ah, our students are stressed. But, um, what's not so good is that it, uh, inhibits flexibility. And so like the way that we look at that is sort of like, let's say you have like a coffee shop that you really love and you go to it all the time. Um, you're really stressed. You go to your favorite coffee shop. They don't have your coffee anymore. There is a coffee shop across the street that does have coffee, but you're not really used to them. Um, if you are stressed, you're less likely to sort of change your behavior. You're more likely to sort of like sit there and be grumpy that your shop is out of coffee Hmm. and, uh, just sort of like be upset and it sort of builds on that stress versus if you're not stressed, you're just going to like practically go across the street to the other coffee shop. Yeah. Uh, so that's another aspect of our research. And then, like I say, I have like colleagues and friends who are looking into it, more like the cannabis and the, the LSD. Well, and that's, yeah, and that's really interesting. And I think that, you know, and, and it's interesting to talk about in our sort of like current social and political climate when some of these things are so divisive in a lot oh, yeah. of ways. Oh, yeah. 
what's been incredibly interesting for me working in a lab that studies cocaine. So cocaine is obviously an incredibly addictive drug. Um, it's really highly monitored by the DEA. Our lab has to have inspections by the government to make oh, sure yeah. that we're not like stealing any. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all very intense. Um, and I asked my boss one time, hey, why don't we also study marijuana? Wouldn't that be really interesting? Um, there's a lot of really cool research going on in like Colorado. And uh, he was like, it is so much easier to have cocaine in the lab than it's it would be to get marijuana. Yeah. That's like, wild. <laughs> the, the approval system for it, he was just like, it's not even worth it to go through that that system. Well, and you know, there's, there's work going into – in a lot of these things, it's just sort of like – in in some ways a matter of time and i think having the research infrastructure to study some of these things is really important like we do work in uh industrial hemp right so like we we grow it we research it for like fibers for a lot of uses it's actually a really useful plant uh you know but that's like the separation that people use of like like you can grow hemp but you can't yes right And what's really like, I just got done reading a really interesting review article on how like neuroscience has also treated it as like a very separate issue because it is fairly easy to get approved to use like THC, uh, like pure THC Mm -hmm. or like pure CBD, but to actually get cannabis is like the difficult part of it. But like, because, because of that, a lot of people will study separately like THC and CBD, which you're going to get both of those. And so we have less knowledge knowledge about what they do together which is like the relevant information that is yeah and that is really interesting and i think that you know that makes an interesting point when we talk about our health when we talk about um the 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 things we consume what whatever that is food or or um stimulants or depressant or whatever it is like none of this exists in a vacuum yeah it like we are complicated meat robots or whatever and it's like no we have to look at like a total system thing like the 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 individual research is important but i like the the idea that no we should be looking at this stuff holistically like how do these things work together what compounding effects both either positive or negative do they have right what's incredible is so many people who study things like addiction often will look at like okay if we get a rat addicted to cocaine what happens but they don't look at like okay well then if the rat is stressed does something else happen if the rat has a friend versus if it doesn't have a friend what happens and nowadays we're getting a lot better at at acknowledging that aspect of it but it can be really interesting that like a lot of times they'll find like the key to even like like any form of substance abuse or even or sorry, substance use, um, any form of that can be reduced if, if you just have a friend, if you just have a buddy, huh. if you have a social support system. Um, but because we were studying like all of these things separately for so long, it was like, oh, why won't this medication work in some people, but will work in others? And the key was adding in that social support. Wow, that's really interesting. Really fascinating stuff. So I, I have maybe, uh, and you, you can you can take this question how you want. Uh, as someone who studies stress, have you found good like techniques for dealing with it? Like, I, like I know you're looking more at the like physiological, psychological effects of it, but like, has that led you to any conclusions in your own life of like how you deal with that? So this is going to be really ironic coming from someone who studies sort of like drug effects in the brain. But honestly, I think the most important thing that people can do is like trick your brain into thinking you're not stressed. (laughs) So whether that is um, people have found that placebos can be incredibly um, 
uh, effective in this area. So even if literally you can know that something is a placebo and it will still have the placebo effect on you. So if hmm. you go, wow, I'm really stressed. This M&M is going to make me not stressed. And then you take it like a pill. You, it's going to help reduce your stress. If you can do some breathing exercises and tell your body, hey, we're not trying to run away from a lion right now. <laughs> we're totally calm. Everything is good. That's going to reduce your stress. You're not going to feel as bad anymore. Really just tricking your brain into thinking that you're okay can make you think that you're okay. Um, it's sort of, in my opinion, the key to all of this. Now, none of that is to say that people shouldn't be taking medication. No, 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 I'm no, very no, openly yeah. on medications for anxiety. Sure. So like, um, but what I'm talking about is specifically like, like stress and anxiety are two very different situations. Yes, right. Stress is something that happens like in your office whenever you have like a due date. Anxiety <laughs> is like a constant all the time thing. Right. Um, but yeah, just and then also learning your individual coping mechanisms, because something that I see even among my rats, um, rats are incredibly useful tool to study human behavior because the, actually humans are just big rats, in my opinion. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yep. Our, our brains work a little bit differently, but in general, I can say, what would I do? And then my, my rat usually makes the same decision that I would make. Huh. And, um, but what's really interesting is, is there's variations. Like some rats, we put them through the stressful situation and they come out of it unchanged. They're like totally fine. Nothing bad happened. And some go through it and it was the end of the world for them. And so we do all this ethically with approval. <laughs> no, right, right, right. Of course. But, um, but the point of that is know yourself. Like you are going to respond differently to stress than other people are. And the important thing is to know what is normal for you and what you can do that helps. Whether or not it reduces someone else's stress is irrelevant. If yeah. your friends look at you and you're like, and they're like, why are you telling yourself that Eminem's going to cure your stress? Like, that's their problem. That's not your problem. If yeah. it reduces your stress, it reduces your stress. No, that's so interesting. And and I love the fact that, like, you can even know that that's what you're doing to yourself. Like, you can even know, like, I am telling myself that these M&Ms are good for me or that they're yeah. they're good for my stress. And your body's just like, all right, your, sure. Your brain is incredibly good at tricking you. <laughs> huh. That's really interesting to me. I really like that. And that's good advice. I think the idea that you know, for any of these things that it's like a one size fits all kind of thing. Like, I just yeah. don't think that works. That's why I think too many people are looking for like, like the cure. I, I think the most relevant example that I've ever heard is like, there's not going to be a single cure for cancer. It's going to be a different cure for each type of cancer mm -hmm. that can apply to everything. Like there's not going to be a single cure for stress. It's going to depend on who you are, what type of stress you're facing. There's not going to be a single way to grow your crops. It depends on what type of crop you're growing. Yeah. There, there's not a single best way to do anything. It's very individualistic. No, I love that. And and it's like, and, and I know as humans or as, as researchers, we like to both, you know, not just reason. I mean, everything is sort of a. What, what do you mean? Researchers are robots. <laughs> well, yeah, no, right. Yeah. And we write like that, right? Yeah. The, yeah which is much. the, which is the dumbest thing, but um. <laughs> Like, and I guess everything is sort of a, I don't want to say it, an effect of, like, we can say, well, research is like this, but research is like this because we're like this, right? Like, it's yes. an effect of how we are. Yeah, there's been a lot of issues that I've taken with academia. Um, I know, like, there have always been problems within academia, but I, I particularly am of, like, sort of a younger generation, and we sort of came in or, like, 
wow, this is all bad and are like trying to fix it. And the main pushback that I get anytime I try to fight something is, well, this is how we do it in research. This is how we do it in neuroscience. I'm like, but why? And like, we're, we're all people. Neuroscience isn't some giant concept. It's human beings studying it. Like we can change it. We can do things differently, but some people don't want to do that. No, I get it. No, I understand. And I'm, I'm with you. I think that, you know, there are things that like, when we see that they need to be changed, they need to be changed. And one of those things, uh, which I think where I started going with that before I came <laughs> qu- quickly off the rails, which is for anyone listening to the show knows like, that's just how I am. Um, that's the fun of it. It's the fun of it. Right. Uh, we like to distill things down to like very simple answers to a point in space because they're easy, to, easy to digest. Right. Like do this. This is what happened. Water your plants and they're happy. Okay. But that's, there's more than that, right? How often do you water? In what context? How heavily? Like, what kind of soil is it in? And like, we don't like to let complicated things be complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you're talking about and the way that you're talking about approaching it, I think is very much that. Like, let's take these complex issues and let them be complicated and try to tackle them as a whole, which I think is really cool. Yeah. But I think part of the issue is that researchers especially don't like not having answers. Right. We got into this job specifically to get answers. And I'm sure as we like both know, the more that you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I've even been told this whenever I'm doing science communication, uh, like I do a lot of like outreach work and I'm told that whenever I'm speaking like to the general public, like don't let them know when you don't know something like we need everyone to like, we need to show that scientists know what, what hmm. we're talking about and that it, it like, it makes people uncomfortable. If they ask you a question you go, yeah, we I don't, don't know. <laughs> no, no one knows that we haven't looked at that. No one knows. Um, but that's the truth of it. No one knows certain, there are certain things about the world that no one knows. That's why researchers still exist. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it works that same way whenever we're writing our papers, we're supposed to be like, ah, oh, we found the one solution to everything <laughs> and that's why you should give me the Nobel prize. Right. But yeah, there's no, there's not a single solution and that's okay. That's okay. And it needs to be okay. Yeah. So this seems like a good time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about science communication and some of the other cool stuff that Morgan does. Well, Hey, welcome to the mid roll. As always, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you've made it this far, and I hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to connect with Planthropology, you can find me all the places on the social medias. I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook as Planthropology, which is anthropology with a PL slapped right on the front. Look for the green background with a bristlecone pine, and that'll be me. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and the TikTok machine as at the plant prof. And I hope you like silliness, because because there's some silliness. And uh, if you want to support the show, there's a lot of ways you can do it. First off, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate that. That is the best support that you could possibly imagine. But you could also tell your friends about Planthropology. If there's people that you know that love cool science and cool science people, uh, send them the show. Tell them what you think. Tell them why you like it. Uh, You could leave a rating and review in any of the places on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Podchaser, or anywhere else that you listen. It means the world to me. I wear a size five-star rating, but I also would like for you to be honest. If you want to be brutally honest, maybe don't do that in a public forum. Shoot me an email at planthropologypod at gmail.com, and I would love to hear your thoughts, concerns, ideas for new episodes, or anything else. If you want to financially support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology. And uh, for the price of a cup of coffee, you will literally buy me and my staff here at the greenhouse where I work 
coffee. That's what it's for. That's what it goes directly to. So when you buy me a coffee, you buy me a coffee. You can also head to planthropologypod.com and click on merch, and there's a bunch of cool stuff that you can purchase with American dollar bucks or probably any other country's dollar bucks as well. We're not picky. Speaking of support, thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for supporting the show and letting me do it and have so much fun with it and so much freedom to do it. It is a blessing in my life and it has become such a huge part of my life and I could not do it without the support of my department and my university. Thanks so much to the Podfix Network for letting me be on there and uh, with all the other cool family of shows we have on Podfix. Um, I don't have a trailer for you today, but I wanted to give you a heads up about a couple of great shows that are coming down the pike. I don't know exactly when it's going to start, but sometime soon, Morgan, who you have been listening to for the past little bit, is going to start a show about science called The Method Section, and I will probably be on there at some point as well. And don't you love to hear my voice? You listen to this podcast for a reason. Also, my buddy Chesco, known far and wide across Al Gore's interwebs as the speech prof has a show coming out, I believe on June 14th in the year of our Lord, 2023 called bad advice Wednesdays. Um, He gets asked all the craziest questions on social media and he's started doing this thing where he asks people to ask questions and he gives them bad advice. So he's bringing on different guests and celebrities and really cool people and uh, asking them to help give bad advice to you the listener so you know what you're getting into it's hilarious chesco is such a good dude and i know you would love that show and you may hear my voice on there eventually as well he'll be slumming when he has me on but he may do it anyway anyway you people are great thanks for listening thanks for being a part of this and let's jump back into the second half of this episode what do you think yeah let's go So that's actually a great segue into talking a little bit about the science communication work you do, because that's something that like so we we kind of got to know each other a little bit through TikTok, maybe a discord group, like all the kinds of stuff. Um, Like what made you want to do that? Because objectively, like we have a lot of other things to do as researchers and scientists and academics. But, you know, I'm there with you that I love doing it. But like for you, what was it that drew you to science communication? So I grew up in um, 4-H, which I've heard other people on your podcast talk about before, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But one of the things that was really instilled in me while I was on 4-H was public speaking and Mm. like the importance of learning how to to do public speaking. And because of that, I'm pretty comfortable like in front of a crowd or like giving a presentation or filming myself. Um, And I know a lot of people aren't like a lot of incredibly smart people who like have stuff to share with the world um, aren't as comfortable doing those same Mm -hmm. things. And so there needs to be someone who who is comfortable with it to sort of like present it to people. And I think that's why the field of science communication is incredibly important because there are scientists who are doing good, amazing work who don't necessarily know how to communicate their science or don't feel comfortable communicating their science. And so there needs to be a group of people who like understand what they're doing and are also okay presenting it. And hmm. so um, that's sort of where I came at it originally. Um, and then I did a lot of outreach uh, work in co- in undergrad where I was specifically, I was part of a uh, collegiate 4-H program hmm. that went out to rural schools and taught different like STEM activities to kids to try to teach them different uh, like STEM concepts. It's awesome. Yeah, we did a lot of engineering, which was way outside of my wheelhouse. <laughs> I like tried to teach them how cars work. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I don't know. They work if you twist a rubber band around the tires. And then, 
uh, but I did my best. And that was a really uh, impactful experience because uh, kids have the best questions that you oh, yeah. ever hear. And they'll ask you completely off the wall things. Um, and so you get a lot of practice uh, that's really useful. And then whenever I started doing my uh, graduate research is exactly when COVID hit. Oh, and wow. Yeah. So everyone was impacted by COVID. Um, the way that I was impacted is like whenever I would normally have like gone to a school, a school was probably the worst place <laughs> you could be at that point. Yeah. And uh, so my actually my boss suggested that I start a YouTube channel to try to do some science communication. And because of that, uh, I started my YouTube channel and then I started a TikTok to try to promote my YouTube channel. And then oh. it became the main thing that I do. Um, and originally, I was one of those people who saw TikTok as like a kid's app. Uh, my mm -hmm. younger brother was on it. And I was like, oh, it's for stupid dances. <laughs> and I, I would make fun of him for getting on it. And then whenever I hit 100 subscribers or 100 followers, I sent him a screenshot. And I was like, hey, look, I'm on your stupid kids. app." <laughs> but after being on it, I see how incredibly important it is mm -hmm. because a lot of academics, I don't know how well this is known outside of the academic uh, circle, uh, use Twitter. Their, their yes. favorite academic Twitter is like a huge thing. Um, and I am not that good at Twitter, but I started using TikTok and I realized a lot of graduate students are on there, a lot of undergraduates yeah. and even like high school students are on there and are totally willing to learn science. They want to learn science. And there's people on there who are spreading misinformation. Mm -hmm. People love it when you correct the misinformation. <laughs> yeah. uh, they do uh, like like there's a there's an audience for it. And like the young people, they're not using Twitter. They're not looking up your research papers that you're sharing. You're the academic Twitter. You're only reaching other academics. Right. Um, which was a really hot take. Among some no, people. no, no. I'm with you for sure. Yeah. So, um, so I really like using TikTok as a platform for science communication because you're able to reach the younger people. The other thing that's incredibly important for me now that I've started doing the online science communication is, um, like I said at the beginning, I came from a very small town. I came from a town about two, of about 200 people. Oh, wow. Yeah, so a, a tiny town. And one of the big things growing up, I had never seen a scientist aside from like maybe like a movie mad scientist. Hmm. Uh, the only scientist I could think of was like a medical doctor. And so for a long time, I wanted to be a medical doctor because that was all I could think of. And then I got to college and I discovered research. And that's... Um, I, I realized like that's the experience of a lot of people who came from small towns. They, they haven't seen what research is and they don't have the opportunity to see us. Like there's not a big college like in, in their neighborhood that right. they can go volunteer at. And so by doing outreach online, you're able to reach those people who like otherwise would not have been able to see a scientist. Like I can't go visit every single small town that's out there, but I can send links to teachers. I can yeah. send my videos to teachers. <laughs> like, uh, so it's easier to get to those communities that need it the most. Yeah. And that's so important. And you're right that like, you know, we have, you know, Lubbock where we are now is a, is a fairly large city, but like there's so much rural Texas right. around here. And, um, yeah. And, and, and it's interesting when they come, to campus for stuff like we've been doing uh, the past few weeks. There's a lot of FFA contests that go uh, on that, that happen on campus. I saw some FFA kids at a Starbucks and I brought back some memories. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, like here at the greenhouse, we, there was a contest this morning. There was one last weekend. There was one the weekend before, like it's been hectic. Um, but some of these kids coming out of, like you said, towns with a couple hundred people, mm -hmm. uh, more cows than humans in these towns. Right, yeah. Uh, 
Like it's all so new and big and it's so important that they're exposed to it. But that is such a small group of students that get the opportunity to come and do it. So I love what you're saying of like, take the education to them where they are, where it needs to be. Right. And the groups of students who do stuff like that, I I get asked a lot. I get a lot of research grants based on having come from a rural community mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of people from rural backgrounds in science. Uh, we're typically like uh, I, I've experienced some discrimination based on just purely being from like a small town. Yeah. And then also, like I said, like there's not a nearby university. Not a lot of people from small towns like end up going to college because of like money and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, the the thing is, though, people will ask me, like, oh, how did you get out? And I'm like, it's mm. not by anything that I did. I was in an incredibly privileged situation where I was in organizations like 4-H. Uh, I was in FCCLA. Yeah, FCCLA, which is like the home ec version of FFA. Yeah. And I um, and through those things, I was able to go to colleges and see things as like a a junior, senior in high school. And those things sort of propelled me towards college. Um, There were other kids who went to my high school who were just as intelligent as I am, just as driven as I am. But maybe their parents didn't have as much money as my parents. Sure. um, Their parents weren't as like supportive of the idea of going to college as mine. So, yeah, to be able to get things to those kids who don't have as many opportunities as the more privileged kids is really important to me. Super cool. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so what, uh, you know, and I ask this question, I don't, I don't ask this question all the time, but I ask it of people in grad school a lot because I think it's important for other people listening, like as you go through the process, like this is this is a big undertaking right there's so much that goes into it from writing and research and and trying to sleep and trying to pull your hair out all those kinds of things like why do you why are you doing it why where do you want to go with it so that's a really big question and um originally i got into graduate school because i wanted to become a professor um i think i made it clear through my science communication stuff that i'm really passionate about educating people Um, I had a lot of professors who were extremely influential on me and that I would not have made it through undergrad without them. And so I really wanted to become that person for other people. Yeah. Um, The more that I see of the inside of academia, um, the less uh, I'm on board with that plan. Sure. (laughs) So right now I'm sort of floating in the wind. Um, I'm floating the idea of going more of the science communication route and maybe um, more like uh, consulting or like. Uh, I don't know, like TV or podcast or, sure. or media of some sort. Also, because those things are aimed more towards the general public, like the people who are at college already have this drive to learn hmm. the things. Um, but also, there's still a big part of me that would love if being a professor purely consisted of being a professor, that is my dream job. Um, but it consists of a lot more than that. It does. It does. And it, it is, I I understand that emotion a lot because like as someone who is kind of professor guy, although not, I don't do much research. I'm not, I'm not, I'm teaching faculty. I'm not a research faculty. And that's kind of what I would rather because the research side of things, um, when you're like in graduate school, it's really exciting. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of research that you do, but whenever you get to the professor level, all they do is write grants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. And I do not want to do that. (laughs) That you're preaching to the choir here. I am 
that is not my thing. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like I'm sure. And if my department chair listens to this, I'm sure he would be happy if I wrote more grants. Um, but like, I feel like my skills lie in teaching. And so that's yeah. where, that's where I am. And, uh, but I understand that feeling too, of like, there is so much baggage that comes with the good things we get to do in academia that sometimes it's daunting and a little bit like, Oh, you know, uh, I, you know, my encouragement to you would just be that like, you can have that, like you can have what you want in academia, but that doesn't mean that. And I think this message is for other people listening too, but that doesn't mean that you have to like, there is so much of a world outside of these like walls, so to speak. That's fair. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think that's cool. And I love that, uh, you know, science communication and, and media and outreach and those things are kind of on your brain and, you know, also, and I know that's like a big question I sort of ambushed you with and I, I apologize, but, <laughs> okay. but, it, but it's also good to hear, I think for people that are in it or considering it or, uh, you know, we, I think all get to, to points in our academic career, especially as grad students, we're just like, what am I even doing? You know? And I, I do think the big thing is to, at the very least, know what you're passionate about. Yeah. Because there have been so many times where I have, I mean, every graduate student that they thought about quitting. Oh, yeah. And every time I come across one of those, I'm just thinking, what do I want to do? And not just like career wise, but like emotionally, what would be fulfilling to me? And becoming some form of an educator is what would be fulfilling to me. And to do that, I have to get through this. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but if I didn't have that, some form of a, a passion or a light at the end of the tunnel, I I don't think anyone would be able to make it through grad school without that. Because <laughs> it's a lot. It is a lot. Um, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just trying to come up with like a random question to ask you that's plant related. Okay. Do you have houseplants? Are you- so I I have what I have decided to call a selective green thumb. Which is, <laughs> I like that. Um, so growing up, my mom killed every single plant that we had in the house. And I would always be so upset about it because I was like, why can't our house be pretty and like have cute little plants everywhere? And then whenever I went to college, I filled my dorm with plants. And yeah. I was such a good plant parent. Like I had <laughs> like all of like the rare ones and the ones that are hard to keep alive. And I mm-hmm. had like a watering schedule. And and I, I was so good at it. And then I got cats. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And one of my cats in particular decided that it was his mission to eat every single plant that I oh, have. Oh, my goodness. And at one point, we went to uh, California to the redwoods. And uh-huh. I got a bunch of redwood seeds. And I was so excited. I was like, I'm going to have a redwood plant. I'm, I'm going to make like a, I'm going to grow a tree. I was so excited. <laughs> I grew four of them. I managed to get them to germinate and sprout the sprout the sprouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um and I put like a bag over them to like protect them from the cats. And then I came home from work one day and one of my cats had knocked them over and used it as a litter box. <laughs> oh my goodness. Cats are like the great destroyers. They are of plants. That's amazing. So, <laughs> in not a good way. So ever since then I haven't had a house plant, but what I've started doing is I keep a plant in the lab because okay. no one can mess with it there. Yeah. And what now, as a plant person, you might think this is torture because I, I don't know how how okay this is for a plant. But I looked up what plants survive the best in fluorescent lighting uh-huh. because our lab doesn't have windows. And uh, I found out that air plants, that I think they have a technical name, mm-hmm. but um, they grow really well with just sure, fluorescent yeah. lighting. So I have one that I keep on my desk that 
it all that it gets is our poor lab lights, but it does pretty well. You know, there, I mean, if you look at like the shelf behind me, I have my one little grow bowl, but mostly they get fluorescent light too. And they, you know, I think it's funny. There are, and, and this is maybe an interesting, just biology thing in general. Like we have best management practices for plants. It's like, you should do this and you should do this. But kind of like we were talking about earlier, it's like, the plants don't really care about our best management practices. Like, yeah, we'll have some that just do the thing. You're like, there's no reason you should be living in here. And the plants like, I just, I really don't care. Exactly. They just sort of have vibes and you yep. just have to go with it. <laughs> yeah. You just go with it. Now I like the, I like having a lab plant and I'm, you know, I know that I am fortunate as a plant person to work in a greenhouse, but like, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking like, if I move offices, how am I going to like, what am I going to take with me? What's going to, what can survive? Well, you should do one of the old labs that I w- worked in. Uh, someone had decided to grow a tree in that lab. So mm-hmm. it was like potted. And originally it was maybe like up to like an adult's waist. Um, so it was very easy to like carry into the lab. Whenever they moved labs, they yeah. brought it with them. Um, but it was a tree. And so like eventually it grew so that it's so big that you couldn't fit it outside of the door. And so they just left it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, that there's there's just a tree in this room. So you can just make your mark on the university, just grow a tree. That are too big big to get out of class. That's actually really funny. Because, like, there's – I don't know if you've ever heard the term guerrilla gardening, where people will go and, like, plant wildflowers in empty lots and (laughs) things like that. I really like the the concept of, like, planting trees inside offices and college classrooms that people come back from, like, summer and they're like – how why is this here and they can't get it out what are you gonna do about it i think that is really funny put some ivy up that would really bother people yeah just like the walls are covered with it when they come back from from summer break or whatever that's that'd be pretty funny i Uh, have never heard about gorilla gardening but now that you say it me and my brother used to do that to my dad all the time (laughs) (laughs) my my dad is very much one of the people who's like i'm gonna have the perfect lawn it's gonna be like that exact like put put a ruler out there and like see how tall my grass is and me and my brother we would take like every dandelion every like (laughs) wild seed and we would spread them everywhere one year, my brother through 4-H got a giant coffee can full of sunflower seeds. Oh my the, goodness! Like, yeah, the like, like, like the actual ones that grow yeah. sunflowers, and he planted them everywhere. And my dad was like, "Why can't I mow through?" This? <laughs> <laughs> it's like biological warfare. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, so, just as we kind of wrap up, the question I like to ask all my guests at the end, and you've you've given some great like pieces of life advice and just just things that you've learned and i and i really appreciate it um but i like to ask like if there was one thing about school or your subject matter or just whatever life in general that that you would like our listeners to kind of take with them what would that be what like one thing would you want to leave that is a tough question it is right i think two things number one find what you're passionate about and find the best route to get there Hmm. and keep that in mind. Like I have a book, like a notebook that anytime I'm starting to doubt what I'm doing or I'm not feeling great, or maybe like it's been a really rough week, I'll go in it and I'll write down what am I passionate about? Why am I doing this? And I guess you could call that journaling. Sure. Yeah. But it's specifically dedicated to that. And then if I'm feeling really bad or I'm feeling really down, I can go back and look at it and be like, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm going through this. And that's been incredibly helpful. My second thing is 
Get plants that are safe for cats. <laughs> there are a lot of plants out there that are not safe for cats, um, and cats will still eat them. So make sure your plants are safe for cats. <laughs> I love that. That's that's great, and it's really actually very good advice because the plants don't or the the cats don't care. They don't. They'll eat anything. They'll eat anything. Yeah, I like it. That's really good advice. Um, Morgan, where can people find you? So I am on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube as Ask a Neuroscientist. And then I'm on Twitter as Ask a Neuro. And that's where you can find any of my science communication stuff. Uh, right now, I'm trying to, on YouTube, do like a Neuroscience 101 series that's very much meant for people who know absolutely nothing about the brain cool. or anything about science. So um, I really recommend that if you're curious about how your brain works. Yeah, that's awesome. Lots of fun. Um so look for links for all those things in uh, the show notes of this episode. But Morgan, thanks for driving six hours to come be on this podcast. I appreciate oh, yeah. it. I'll do it again in like a month. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect. Y'all follow Morgan's sage advice and make sure your plants are cat safe. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. Uh, you know I do this for you and I, you know that I enjoy recording this show because you enjoy listening to it. Thanks again to Morgan for coming on and giving us her experience and her knowledge and her wisdom. She's so much fun, and I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, keep an eye out for the method section when it comes out. Go follow Morgan all the places at Ask a Neuroscientist, and uh, just stay tuned for more updates. Uh, thanks again to the Podfix Network and to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science. Planthropology is recorded, written, edited, and produced by yours truly. And uh, y'all... You know I love you so much. Thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for being my friends. Uh, definitely connect. Uh, send me messages. I love it when you people say hi. Uh, keep being kind to one another. If you have not yet been kind to one another, maybe give that a shot. It's pretty great. And keep being really cool plant people. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.